0: Welcome to Podcasts is Code, a show about the operation side of the software development lifecycle. I'm Mitchell Scott. And I'm Gabe Cook. Today, we're going to talk about outages and postmortems, but first, a little drama in the development world. Um, this didn't line up with our release schedule, so we might be a little late
1: to the punch, but uh, there's been a lot of drama online with Unity, uh, the game engine. It's not even necessarily DevOps, but I feel, you know, we had to mention this. Unity's yeah. probably been the biggest game dev engine for a long time, many years now, and they have introduced a bunch of fees, which were not going to be great for a lot of developers, even existing games. Yeah. Like the, the most annoying part, was this
0: last week they they announced this? Yeah. It all went by really fast. I think yeah. it was mid last week. Yeah. So they announced a, they called it a runtime fee. And it was going to apply based on your number of, like, unique installs of your game. Like, you'd be billed per install. And it was kind of expensive, like, up to 15 cents an install or something. Mm-hmm. And the, the crazy part was, like, it was retroactive. So it would count the number of installs in, like, the last 12 months or something like that. So you could potentially have an indie game developer who had made a couple hundred thousand dollars on a game and suddenly be on the hook for well more than that of licensing fees to unity. Yeah. And there were some quote unquote like protections about like, you need to make this much revenue. So free games or free applications weren't really impacted, but it really shook developers and everyone pretty much instantly lost trust in unity as a game engine. Mm -hmm. There were some
1: games saying that when this comes around, Starting beginning of 2024, they'd be like delisting their games and things like that. So it was not
0: a great look. No, it was really bad. I can't. I'm surprised it got through like a PR department. Um, And then they did walk it back quite a bit. I think it was Friday or Saturday. They, They came out with a kind of like a we're sorry post and walked back a lot of the things. So the personal edition remained free and then uh the like pro or enterprise level you don't have to pay a fee now unless you're over a million dollars in revenue and it's not retroactive so it starts with right. the
1: first 2024 release of unity
0: yeah that seems it seemed a lot less shady and i think there would have yeah. been i don't know it seems like there probably would have been a better acceptance of it if they had announced it this way first but <laughs> it's still it's still hard I mean, to me, it still feels a little bit like a cash grab by Unity. Yeah. Now um, everyone's nervous. So, And I, if the fee doesn't
1: apply on the current versions, how long are people just going to stick with an old version now?
0: <laughs> right. Uh. And that's, yeah, that's not going to be good for anybody because you're going to have apps running, you know, as, as time goes on, more and more outdated and potentially security-vulnerable releases of a game engine. Yep. So hopefully, I mean, in my opinion, hopefully more games and applications move to open source engines um what was that one there was there was one that's pretty similar to unity right
1: yeah godot looks pretty interesting i, I don't know very much about game development but i was just you know kind of looking at what the engine can do godot also is in c sharp i mean i think it's pretty different but like the language itself is still c sharp um or you know godot is interesting it might have like some sort of adapters but one of them is C sharp I, I think you can do multiple languages yeah but there's also um what's the other one unreal engine too. yeah if, you, run if by you if you're not in epic. bed with epic games yet consider yeah. that maybe <laughs> uh, I feel like open source is the way to go for any kind of library
0: yeah but. I mean epic had their own drum over the last couple of years yes so I don't know if that's an improvement or not <laughs> switching from unity to epic but yeah if you're if you're developer or you have developers that you work closely with uh keep an eye out for any additional changes with this unity stuff make sure they're aware of all the all the goings on there because this is this has unfolded over the past week and it's not great news a little better since i walked it back but it's still um I think a lot of trust has been lost in Unity because, you know, if they can announce that one time, then they can certainly wait a few months or a year and announce something kind of draconian again. There's also some concerns with how installs are tracked and adding in telemetry and stuff to the games, so
1: not great. Yeah, although if it's retroactive, it means they already
0: have the telemetry. They're just using it now. Yeah, it's kind of bad feels. (laughs) Yeah. All right, let's move on to our main topic this week. Uh, it'll be outages and postmortems. So let's start with outages. Gabe, what is an outage? Well, the most obvious thing is
1: when the site is down. <laughs> like, the whole thing doesn't work. You go to a browser and you just get a big 500 error or it loads forever. But not all outages are full outages. Yeah. Could also be degraded performance, like severely degraded performance. is just really, really slow or, you know, just one part of the site is down. Right.
0: Like maybe your site loads, but some static assets aren't loading or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or you can see the homepage. You can see, you know, the
1: marketing page, but you can't actually log in. Yeah. That's like still if, a, an like outage. if a database is down, but
0: like the front end is still up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's still an outage, but.
0: Might be harder to detect until you know someone notices. Yeah, and some some of these symptoms will depend on what exactly is causing the outage. Because you mentioned degraded versus down, and that could be you know something like a, a resource constraint that you've hit, where you know maybe the first you know 3,000 3, people, whatever, who load the page, it loads fine, and then the next few hundred people that load the page, it starts getting a little slow until you have such resource exhaustion that the page completely fails to load or something like that. So it's not always obvious to detect these sorts of things. It also could happen from, you know, your site being
1: like botted a a denial of service attack where just lots and lots of people are accessing And If you have that issue where it starts slowing down, then, you know, thousands of requests from a bot are most likely going to bring it down pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of, so like categories for outages. So resource exhaustion and denial of service attacks, that's kind of in a category of a system we built or that we maintain has broken for some reason and we have to figure out why. And that could mm. be because of a bug in the software that either we wrote or we didn't, or like we mentioned, like resource exhaustion or an outside actor, or a bad actor doing something nasty against the site. Another situation would be that we broke something. And that could be as a result of a system upgrade or an update, or maybe our developers shipped something that didn't work correctly. Maybe there was some database migration that didn't run right and things got broken.
1: Yeah, that's true. I've seen that one happen. That one's easy to do because, you know, in your machine, you don't usually have a production data set. So you have like a few test users And you migrate data. But then when we ship it to prod, there could be hundreds or thousands of users and the migration will be a lot more work on the database so that that one's actually pretty easy to do.
0: Yeah, like with upgrades or updates, like you could upgrade a package in an application and if you don't have full test coverage, the things you click around and try to QA might be fine and then you ship it and then some user does something that you hadn't tested for and that endpoint or whatever that's doing is broken. Um, So there's kind of a third category too, which is a vendor's system broke. And that could be, you know, if you're using AWS, maybe there's an AWS outage in your region or your zone, or if it's something on-prem, maybe you had a hard drive fail in a server or a power supply fail or a power outage or something like that. And while the symptoms may be the same, how you react and and what you do may be different based on what the cause of the outage is. Like if a vendor's system has failed, There's not a lot for you to do except for engage the vendor and then, you know, wait on their troubleshooting and repair process. Right. Yeah. Be sad and wait it out. Yeah. Uh, So that, that affects how we troubleshoot. If it's, if it's something we control, then, you know, either way you have to triage the issue, but if it's something we control, then we're on the hook for, uh, for getting that repaired and troubleshooting outages is, is interesting there's kind of two camps of people that I've encountered and how they react to outages. And one camp is like, Oh God, Oh God, I don't know what to do. Things are broken and I'm afraid. (laughs) And the other camp, which is I've not encountered very many people like this. I think you and I are both like this, but it's like, I haven't either. Oh man, something's broken. I, I need to get in here and figure this out and like those people operate at their best when stuff is falling apart around them. Yeah, you kind of go into problem-solving mode. And I outages, to me, are really fun. Like, me I too. I enjoy the mindset that I, like, slip into when I'm troubleshooting something like this. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I agree. I've always found it fun to, you know, pull logs at the time it happened and try to re- correlate them with, like, outage monitors and just try to tie everything together. It's like a puzzle that I get to solve. Yeah. That being said, they're bad. <laughs> we want to try to prevent them.
0: Yeah, definitely. But the problem solving aspect i also have found fun yeah do you have any methodologies you use gabe to like troubleshoot outages um i think
1: it depends honestly there you know there's a lot of different situations and different ways to host websites usually i i typically will try to like find all of the data find and document all of the data i have whether it's logs or metrics or timestamps for outage monitors or when a user said they're having a problem um just try to get it all documented in one place and then start correlating and in my eyes it's usually better to have the data first yeah yeah is there anything you do differently
0: i don't know about differently but i i learned how to troubleshoot outages in a networking setting first Mm. so um i i usually do it with either like a piece of paper or a tablet or something like I'm diagramming as I walk through the systems of like, okay, what systems do I have? How do I expect them to talk to each other? How are they talking to each other? Stuff like that. And I also, I start with kind of the OSI layer model and folks who aren't as familiar with networking. That's your, like your layer starting at physical going all the way up to like application layer. So I'll start as close to the physical layer as I can. So, you know, in a networking world, that's like, what's the interface doing? Is it passing traffic? That sort of thing. In a server environment, that's more like, is my server up? Did it reboot recently? How's my disk memory CPU utilization? You kind of walk up the stack logically from there. So I use that and it's kind of an exhaustive way to do things. And so occasionally if there's an issue we've come across before, like I'll, I'll shortcut that. But that's, that's how I like to proceed is like start at the lowest layer that I can touch kind of drawing out diagrams the whole way and work my way to the top and see what layer the problem is on to be
1: fair it'll tell you if you are missing anything
0: yeah there have been times where i
1: think i have everything gathered and then i go to cloudflare and realize there's one more like graph that i can screenshot so it's it's kind of nice to to be more exhaustive
0: Yeah, it definitely also helps if you have some of this diagram or documentation stuff ahead of time. So you know how the system is supposed to look instead of building that as you go, because it's a little more time intensive, but also like pieces could be offline or not talking to you. So (laughs) it's it's a little harder to build those diagrams if like when the problem could be one of those pieces that you haven't necessarily identified yet.
1: Yeah, it's also sometimes helpful to. I don't know. This seems like a time that it's, it's really useful to like talk through something.
0: Oh um, yeah. I, like,
1: like when we have an outage, you and I will like hop on a, you know, just a quick call and like chat through it as we find information. And it's very helpful.
0: Yeah. I, I really like to troubleshoot outages as a team. Yeah. Um, it's, it's useful to bounce ideas off of, off of somebody else. It's also super easy to get tunnel vision as you're looking at these things. So having someone else there who can say, I don't know if that's the direction we should go down yet. Let's <laughs> let's take a step back is super helpful because you can what at the ISP, we call this like chase, chasing ghosts. Um, and, and some people were more prone to do that than others. So they'd see one thing that was a little bit off and they'd go way down that rabbit hole. When in reality, like it was an it was an OK parameter. It was just a little a little wonky, and, but it wasn't our problem.
1: Yeah, that can definitely happen. There have been times like during an outage, I'm looking at logs and I'm like, oh man, the app is logging some error like once every 10 minutes. And then later on realize, oh, that's just happening normally. We should yeah. probably make that error go away. So I I can see how that would you'd get like go down that whole rabbit hole of tunnel and why is this error happening? When actually it just kind of happens.
0: Yeah, it's also useful to have multiple people looking at different things simultaneously. So like, you know, it's not like one of us is just sitting there watching the other, like we're both kind of going down our own path. So like I may be doing an exhaustive, like bottom up investigation of like, what's what's broken at which level. And you may be already like way deep into app logs. So as soon as one of us finds something, we can communicate that back and potentially save the other one time and speed up the whole recovery process. Because generally When these things happen, time is kind of of the essence, right? Like the client (laughs) site is down or something like that, where like, you don't have, you don't have all day to kind of walk through the logs or, or whatever and figure out like what exactly is going on here? Like you've got to recover the system as quickly as possible, documenting everything you can in the process, but speed of recovery takes precedence over like data gathering at this stage. Um, so it definitely helps to be, you know, I've known people who log their entire terminal output to files so that afterwards they can scroll back and, and look at, you know, what exactly did that log message say? You're like, what, what did the router say the light level was at this location whenever we were having the problem?
1: Yes, although it's important at the same time to try to bring the site back very quickly while still checking or at least grabbing the data somehow. Like yep. in Kubernetes, if you say, you know, like, do a rollout restart, like redeploy the site and it redeploys, you're going to lose that old container. So first of all, you'll lose the timestamp of like how old it was, but you also will lose like its file system. If there's any way like a file got corrupted or something, sometimes it's very helpful to still have that. So it's, It's kind of a balancing act and it's kind of hard to find the right balance, honestly. Like I want to get all the data so that we don't just bring the site back up, but we can say, yeah, this won't happen again. Yep. But I also don't want to make any user wait like 20 minutes if I don't have
0: to. Yeah, it for sure is a balance because like my go-to is just to start restarting things in some cases, which Mm -hmm. isn't great for like, why did that happen? It's like, oh, I don't know, but I restarted (laughs) it and it fixed it. But it works. Yeah. And that's that is not like. When you do your root cause analysis and you're like, why, what did we fix? It's like, I don't know. I just restarted everything. Like that is not a <laughs> confidence inspiring solution. Classic. Turned it off and on again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you conduct a postmortem, so after outages, I, I think everyone should conduct f- like postmortems. Um, yeah. You mentioned out, postmortems. Yeah. To figure out what went wrong. And there's a couple, we can, we can kind of walk through our template we use here in a second. Um, But the most important thing about postmortems is they need to be blameless, right? Yep. And what that means is like, we're not blaming people for anything during the postmortem process, because what happens if you don't have a culture of doing blameless postmortems is that anyone who thinks they might've made a mistake or made recovery slower or anything like that, they will not be as open or as honest about what happened. And that just slows everything down. So I'm, I'm a nerd and I kind of into like airplane incidents and accidents. (sighs) Me too. And so one of the things that is very uncommon in like NTSB investigations or any investigation into like an airline accident, it's very uncommon that any of the flight crew ever gets jail time. And part of the reason for that is if you, as a pilot, know that being honest in your testimony could land you in prison, you're not going to be very forthcoming with any information, regardless of how much it could harm you, you're going to default to like, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want the risk. And that is detrimental to the overall safety of the whole industry and, and to everybody. And it's kind of similar here, you know, to a lesser extent, because yep. like we're, lives generally aren't at stake, but yeah. you want to foster a culture of of openness and honesty and and not blaming people for outages. Right. And I hope that like on our team, no one ever thinks like, oh, I messed up. I caused an outage. I'm going to get fired. Like that is not. I really hope that the culture that you and I are building on our team is such that no one ever thinks that.
1: Yeah, agreed. Blameless postmortems are always like the first thing that's very important.
0: So I, I've always strived for that. I, I think that everybody is aware of it. And there's kind of. To make, to make it blameless, like, I mean, everyone has the same goal, right? The goal is not like rag on person who caused the outage. The goal is let's identify what happened and, and put systems in place to prevent it from happening again. Because fundamentally, your systems should prevent human error as much as possible.
1: Exactly. I've seen postmortems, you know, for not even outages, but, you know, there are some postmortems that come to mind, like a company makes some technical error and then they say later on, like, oh, yeah, it was, you know, a recent intern did it. And that's great. But why did your process let an intern
0: have such, you know, control of production? Right. I think that there's a deeper issue. Yeah. Like, if, yeah, which means you gave yeah you gave an intern the keys to production, <laughs> yeah. and there were not systems in place to require approval of whatever they did. So, like, yeah, technically the intern was the one that pushed the button, but everyone gave him, like, they, the they tools. They gave him... All the capability yeah. to do it, yeah. You yeah. shot yourself in the foot and then blame the intern. Right, intern pulled the trigger, but you handed him a loaded weapon. Yes, that's accurate. So, yeah, and, and like, blame is... You know, fundamentally, like the blame is shared, right? Like everyone is responsible for building and maintaining these systems. So, one thing that we try to do in our blameless postmortems is we try not to really mention people's names. So it's not, you know, Gabe did this. It's Gabe deleted everything. Done. Yeah. Right. It's not. Yeah. Gabe deleted all the <laughs> files. It's the files were deleted. Yeah. So it's it's a subtle change in how you. And it it took me a, a little, like a couple times through to to kind of orient my mind that way when I'm like writing these up, mm-hmm. because you know, it's factual. Like, you know, maybe Gabe did do a thing, but like, it doesn't Gabe doing the thing. It doesn't matter. It could have as easily been me or somebody else. Right. But what was wrong that caused Gabe
1: or you to need to be in a place where we were running some dangerous command that could possibly
0: do that. Right. And like, why weren't you stopped by the system? And exactly. you know, all of that. So, Um, So that's the blameless portion. I think that's super important. Like, honestly, if you're not going to do a blameless postmortem, I don't know that you should do one because that's just going to attract attention on your staff and it's going to, it's going to make up for a hostile culture. And I've worked in places like that. It's no fun. It makes outages a lot worse and a lot less, you know, it makes them not fun to troubleshoot and they can already be stressful. It makes it way stressful when you're in the middle of an outage trying to recover things. And you may need to run a potentially scary command to try to recover something. If you know that like your job is on the line, if you make the outage worse, then you're going to be less likely to even mention the thing you want to do. Yep. And that's not good. I mean, you know, obviously don't, don't be cavalier with like what you're doing to recover things. You don't, you definitely want to make systems, you know, don't make the system worse while you're trying to fix it. But at the same time, you need to have a culture where everyone can mention their ideas and not be made to feel like an idiot for, whatever they come up with in the moment because it's stressful. People may say silly things and that's, that's okay. Um, let's walk through our template. So we, we use an Atlassian template and it's, we'll, we'll add a link to it in the show notes. It's definitely, definitely public. And like, I, I think it's pretty useful. Some of the parts can be a little redundant depending yeah. on like what the issue is. Um, so definitely feel free to leave any of these blank as you like run through a postmortem yourself. Oh, and actually one thing I'll mention too is it could be a good exercise if you don't have a an outage to do a postmortem on. Do a postmortem on a vendor's outage or another software company's outage. Um, not only is it a good exercise for running through the process, but it's a good exercise for are we vulnerable in the same ways that they were for this issue? And we've run through this anytime there's a big AWS outage or anything like that. Even if it doesn't affect us, we'll go through a little bit of a, like a brief postmortem of, if this same thing did affect us, like maybe, maybe it wasn't our region that went down or our zone that went down, but if it was, how would we have reacted? And like, would we have been okay? Or is there stuff we should implement before it happens to us to correct that? Mm-hmm. How bad would it have been for us? The recovery. time? So it kind of helps to do mock postmortems, both to, you know, as practice and you you could find stuff that that could, you know, make, make your life easier in the future or or prevent an outage in the future. Which is the whole point of a postmortem is, you know, figure out what went wrong, not to blame people, but you can fix it so it doesn't happen again. Fix the process. Yeah. So our template starts with just a summary of the incident. And this is this is really brief, like executive summary, a couple sentences. You know, this thing happened. At potentially, you know, at this time, this was done. This is how it was recovered. Like it's that it's like a three sentence, like the way you would close out the outage ticket. Mm hmm. So that's pretty self-explanatory. And then you have the lead up and that's going to be like what led to the incident. And that could be, we were doing a Kubernetes upgrade or it could be, you know, code was shipped to production.
1: These Migrating are
0: usually, data, something. Like, yeah, yeah. These are usually pretty short unless it happens like at the end of a very involved process or something like that. But it's basically the context around like, here's what happened before the thing that happened. That, that gives some color to what happened and and could also in the future you might identify that lead up event as like let's slow down here and make sure that everything's looking all right um so that's mm-hmm. lead up and then there's fault, and that's going to be like was there a change that didn't work as expected, and this is usually the case. When it's an it, when the outage is a result of something that our team did to break a thing, or a developer did that broke an application, um, if if the vendor's having an issue, the fault is going to be like vendor had problem, right? There's not going to be much you can do to prevent that.
1: Which does happen though, like especially yeah. nowadays, there's so many levels of cloud providers. So, right, that's pretty common.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have like your cloud where your compute instances run. You have
1: Cloudflare or Yeah, you Acumai have uh, some or,
0: Yeah, some content delivery network or proxy service it's running. Yeah. You have a whole, you know, the whole public certificate network that is issuing certificates for things. You have ISPs connecting all this stuff together potentially to your systems, potentially to a customer system. You know, you may have you may have customers or end users open a ticket that's like your site is down and the root cause may be like their ISP was down.
1: Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's even on the user side, like a recent,
0: you know, Chrome upgrade
1: broke the way that we're serving HTTPS and we've got to fix our certificates or something. Yeah.
0: And there was, there was one a while ago, like it's been a couple of years, but there was some big Chrome update that changed like fundamentally how cores was applied and it broke, which is uh, like the cross site scripty type stuff mm-hmm. um and it, it really it broke a lot of sites through no action of the site but from you know everyone's browser that day updated and then all these sites broke in new and exciting ways <laughs> that's so fun yeah
1: so the next one is impact so who is affected and for how long and then how many tickets were open on this one i I don't actually deal with this one as much usually I guess you collect your kind of support data that you have, try to figure out like how many users were on the site that possibly, you know, had lost connections, things like that. Yeah.
0: And if it's like a total site outage, then you're like, you know, the impact was everyone for yes. this long. If it's something a little more subtle, it could be like, you know, like your example earlier where the marketing site is up, but the, like the admin portal is down. You're like, mm-hmm. Issue is administrators can't log in, but you know, front end users, like regular people online, no, no impact. Or, or if it is some ISP issue, you're like Comcast users could not reach our site. Something like that. Just to spell out like who was impacted. And that's Chrome of thing. users. Yeah. Chrome <laughs> users yeah. yeah. Chrome users who updated to version like 52 or
1: whatever. And then we have detection. So how is it detected? And then with timestamps. So this is why I mentioned earlier, it's it's pretty important to try to have timestamps as much as possible so we can figure out, you know, when did this, like exactly when did this first happen and when was it detected? Typically this one will have, you
0: know, either when a ticket was opened or when a uptime alert was triggered. Yeah. And the timestamps are important, not just for like triage or root cause analysis or anything like that, but, and they, they are important for those, but also important for, If you if you violated or so, firstly, determining if you violated a service level agreement an SLA Mm -hmm. and then if you have, how much money do you owe your customers back due to that violation? And having accurate timestamps is super important for that Um, because it's not reasonable to expect your customers to do that math. You need to do that math and, and do the right thing by your contracts. Yeah. SLAs are important. They're not just a number. It's
1: yeah. important to make sure that data is tracked
0: correctly. Yeah. And then an important thing with detection is so, I, you know, when was it detected? How was it detected? Could that be improved? That's this is kind of the first, like, how can we make this better question of the, the post mortem template? True. So is
1: that like if the detection timestamp is a ticket that was opened from a user,
0: why could we not detect it automatically? Is that, yeah, that'd be a great thing? one. Yeah, that'd be a great one. Like if, you know, if, a user end user opened a ticket because they got an HTTPS error. The question is like, could we? Yeah. The question is not like, why didn't we detect this? It's could we detect that in the future without having a person report it? Mm -hmm. And that's another part of the blameless is like, not why didn't you do this, but how could we do this? And it's, it's a subtle thing, but it's,
1: that's true. I guess I just meant there have been times where, like, uh, you know, we were doing health checks, but they were pointed at, you know, the marketing site instead of the API. So it's yeah. not necessarily blame. I just mean, like, maybe we didn't no, have no, no. uptime yeah. monitors, but like,
0: why weren't they triggered? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and like, and we now have triggers. You know, we didn't for a while, but we now have triggers for give us warnings before the the certificates expire, mm-hmm. because sometimes our processes to do the automatic renewal don't work or a secret doesn't get replicated. And that shouldn't happen, but it has happened. Mm -hmm. And then additionally, um, we've had, we've had customers or uh, clients open tickets when a site is loading slowly, like the site took 45 seconds to load the page on a site that should have taken three seconds to load a page. So like that, the site's not down. So we didn't get a, an alert. But we could adjust our thresholds, our timeout thresholds in our monitoring system so that if the site takes that long to load, we'll get an alert. And that lets us ideally figure out there's a problem, start looking at the problem, and maybe even resolve the problem before we even get a ticket opened, And that's kind of the ideal. Yeah, if performance
1: is slowly degrading and we can catch that early on, users that are, you know really deep into, you know, editing data on a site might sit through a five second load time. And if we can fix it before it gets to 45, then yeah. we might not even need to, you know, have them open a ticket and then that whole process be done. So you're right. Yeah. Then the next one is always my favorite, honestly. It's the response. So who responded? What are all those timestamps and what did they do? Yeah. And I'll usually try to give a whole list of you know, like things that we were working through timestamps on I, that I normally pull from like our chat logs and timestamps yep. from yep. all the, the data that I throw into a text file. Um, yeah. But I have a lot of fun with response because sometimes there's many small things that are tweaked or fixed to get the site working again.
0: Yeah. And if you're responding quickly, this looks really good on the formal, like if you have to send a formal root cause analysis um, or a reason for outage in RFO. Um, this looks really good. If that timestamp is really quick, like in rapid succession to detection and also the fault, right? So if that's bang, bang, bang problem happened, we detected the problem. This engineer started engaging on it. That looks really good. So, um, true. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely important to have those timestamps. Also, if this is another one where like the detection was at this time, how could that be improved? The response was at this time, could that be improved and how? You know, if if your outage notification fires at 3 a.m. and you don't have anyone on call or you don't have a system in place to wake someone up, you may not get a response until 7 or 8 a.m., right? So by the time you have an engineer awake and like looking through Slack on their phone, that system could have been down for four hours. Yeah. And at that point, you're probably way over any SLA. (laughs) Right. And so, and that's not, you know, these aren't necessarily personnel problems. These are systemic problems. Like, you know, outage came to Slack. Slack cannot wake me up. And, you know, my phone may ding or it may not. Cause like I'm asleep. Um, so maybe there's a system you could get, you know, something like pager duty, some system like that that can actually start ringing engineers through an on-call rotation to get mm-hmm. eyes on problems if you need. So that's another one too of like who responded and when, is there any way we can improve that response time? You know, like maybe maybe it's during the middle of the day, but the entire ops team is in a four-hour on-site meeting or something. Like, you know, that stuff has happened.
1: Yeah. So again, it's all it's all about the process. Yeah. What what could we automate or what tools could we buy to just make sure
0: that our people know that something's wrong? Right, because yeah. we want to we never want to assume people aren't doing their jobs well. Because in general, like, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. So if if someone didn't respond to something for for that for a long enough time that like you need to think about it and fix it it's probably not that they were like watching youtube it's either they didn't see a notification or there were other roadblocks in their way that kept them you know maybe they were head down on some other issue um so identify the roadblocks and then work to figure out how to remove those or 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 lessen them and you know maybe the answer is head count that's kind of the kind of the last resort as you go through these things Mm -hmm. is like, you know, hiring someone's never a trivial matter. It's never quick or cheap, but, but maybe at the end of the day, it is headcount. Maybe your team's running too thin and you had people all over the place and, and no one could look at this problem in time.
1: Yeah. So then we have the actual recovery. So basically what was done and, you know, either to fix the issue or revert the problematic change. And, This one is usually also a little bit more in depth. We'll list like the actions we did and maybe even have some links to like a revert so that later on we can go back and look at what was reverted and see, okay, if we need to upgrade this in the future, how can we do it without causing an outage?
0: Yeah. And another important part of recovery is like kind of asking yourself the question of, is this something that we could automate or we should automate? Um, like Kubernetes gives you a lot of tools to detect issues and like restart pods, for example, or, or maybe it's something that it's a resource constraint issue. And maybe this would have been solved by having like a horizontal pod autoscaler in place where application gets slammed. We can't necessarily fix the application. Like that's another team or whatever, but we can detect when the application is slammed and maybe we can spin up a replica of it and alleviate some of that load and keep the thing available. That's
1: true. I'm actually I'm glad you mentioned that. That reminds me one of the fixes that we've had to do in the past which ended up working very well even though it was kind of a hack was we we noticed a site had a memory leak and over the day it would slowly need more and more memory even though in Kubernetes we had a limit specified. So it would oh, get yeah. up to the limit yeah. and crash pretty quickly, but it lasted almost a full day without issue. So you know, you we we have the devs look into the memory leak, but while they're doing that, we don't want it to go down again. You can do something like have Kubernetes restart the app overnight. Then ideally the memory leak won't ever cause an issue,
0: and that should hopefully hold you over until
1: the fix is in place.
0: Yeah. Um and we we had another issue you know we mentioned that cert expiration like secrets didn't get replicated we have a tool that runs and replicates our certificate secrets throughout different namespaces in our cluster that tool had a not a memory leak but a different bug where it would kind of stop updating for namespace for new namespaces <laughs> and so we also you know opened a ticket like opened a github issue for that tool but it's open source you know people are basically donating their time to that tool So can't necessarily fix the tool, but we can restart that service every week or every night or whatever. So to make sure that our certificate secrets get updated. So in that instance, we had a couple different takeaways. It was make the monitoring better so we can detect if it happens. But also, even if it's a little not ideal, build an automated way so that it shouldn't happen again. You know, even if that is like manually, like not manually, but like restart a service. Yeah. On and just make, level, a, with a, make cron a Kubernetes
1: job. cron job that restarts the deployment.
0: It's not great, but right. it's better than an outage. Yeah. And that's the goal here. And you can, you know, we would during this process, you document these things that you're doing and ideally, like especially if your team or company controls the application or the service, you open a ticket that's a feature improvement of like, hey, don't have a huge memory leak, but. If you can fix it on the operation side quickly, implement that fix as a, at least as a band-aid.
1: Because
0: the next time it happens, maybe a weekend or a holiday. So even if there's an ugly solution, it's better than, you know, better than having humans jump into equipment off hours or something.
1: Yeah. And if we have this all documented, then if it does happen again in the future, it could also be helpful. There could be a future yeah. postmortem where it's different. Ideally, we shouldn't ever have the same postmortem twice, but maybe there was a related issue, you know, due to some other dependency upgrade or something like that.
0: Yeah. And even, you know, if it is a cloud vendor, like was the cause of a postmortem, you you definitely could have a, the same issue happen True. again. So if there's some <laughs> mitigation step or when do know, you contact, consider migrating? Right. Or, or co- even contact information for like man, I tried to get a hold of somebody and I couldn't at this number, but I found, you know, this, you know, phone IVR sequence of numbers got me to a person who could at least give me a status update. Like that's good info to have because ideally these post-mortem things you're building are searchable. So you'll, you know, if you go search your ticketing system during an outage, which you should totally do anytime there's a problem, you know, like search the error message in Google or whatever, but search your internal systems too, because somebody may have dump some logs in a ticket somewhere that could very well have the steps to your salvation in them. Definitely. Um, so we've mentioned timelines or timestamps a few times. You really do want to, and this is the the time to do that is build a timeline of every single event. So piece together the timestamps from all of the previous things, put it, you know, just make a timeline of it. Ideally, this is in something like UTC that it makes sense, right? Like, Time zones can be tricky depending on also like which side of daylight saving time you're on, stuff like that. So ideally it's in UTC and then you can convert that as you send out notifications to your clients. So you can convert that to local time when you send out notices or uh, like RFOs, RCAs, but pick, pick a time zone and stick with it internally so that people don't get confused. Cause that, you know, that matters and definitely make sure all of your timestamps for the same issue are consistent in like what yeah. zone they are because there's nothing worse than going through. And you're like, this was a four second, like, this there's nothing worse than going through. and saying, like, this is a four minute outage. Why is it six hours and four minutes? Like when <laughs> how did the they math. fix
1: this before it happened?
0: <laughs> yep. Um, so we're going to use kind of all of the previous things to do a root cause analysis. And I, we've mentioned root cause analysis is our foes reason for outages. Sometimes you're required contractually to provide those to clients. A lot of times you're not, but it helps to have them ready.
1: Root cause analyses are also often called just RCAs. So you may have seen that online too.
0: Yep. Yeah. So whether or not you have to give these to your clients, it definitely helps to have them written up because you know, you may get to three days after an outage and one of your important clients calls up their contact, like their project manager, or whoever, and say, Hey, by the way, why were we down earlier in the week? And they may not even have a good, they may be like, you know, I think it was on Monday or whatever. And it helps if your project manager or whoever the client contact is, doesn't have to engage an operations person and have them remember what happened. It's easier if it's written up somewhere and they can just reference this, read it off to the client. And then if the client has questions or wants to talk to an engineer, like that's fine, but give the other, you know, the, the less technical people, the information they have to answer the client's questions satisfactorily. And, you know, like I said, you may be contractually required to send these to clients as soon as you have them. So, you know, always do a root cause analysis. Definitely. So a root cause analysis, we're we're basically just compiling the things from previous steps in here and figuring out, like, what is the fundamental root cause? Like, you know, server memory being full, that is a symptom. Why was the memory full? So we'll get into it. Like, so what happened, right? Application went down. When did it happen? We've, we always have our timestamps. Mm-hmm. What caused that to happen? And um, there's this concept of like the five whys. And I at first when I saw that reference, I was like, what, what does that mean? And the more I looked into it, the more it's like you ask questions like how a toddler asks you questions, right? It's why? And then you give a reason. You're like, okay, but why that? <laughs> okay, why? And then you give <laughs> a reason and you're like, okay, but why? And you basically do that until you run out of things. And then you found the root cause, right? So like, yeah, application went down. Why did that happen? Well, we exhausted the memory and it got out of memory killed. Okay. But why did we exhaust no. the memory? You know, and if you, if you follow that down long enough, you'd be like, oh, well, there's a memory leak. Well, why? It's like, well, you know, this code we got from or this application, we got Some from this
1: vendor dependency or yeah. Application we got from a vendor something
0: and that may be as far as you get but if you wrote the application or your company did you may be able to trace it back to like this line of code is not great or you know some issue so you basically you you ask yourself the question of why until you get to the fundamental reason for why something happened until it doesn't make sense to keep asking why (laughs) right (laughs) and you and you stop asking why before you ask like well why did gabe do that right like
1: <laughs> you stop yeah, just sort of not like blameless. asking why a
0: person was yeah <laughs> this isn't blameless well why did gabe put a memory leak in here no i didn't mean to <laughs> and then once you figured out why you kind of ask yourself like do we have systems in place that are designed to prevent this from happening and and if we and do, did, did they, they f-
1: fail to do their job?
0: Right. Yeah. And then you kind of also ask yourself, like, you, you do the why tree crawling. Yeah. Do that again. exercise again, right? Like, oh, why didn't we detect this? Well, like you know, our intervals are set too high. Okay. Well, why did we set them that way? Is there and because that could help you determine, like, did we set them that way to avoid false positives and like you know the implications of of that? And oftentimes.
1: Two, this kind of thing is pretty important because there have been cases where, initially, X amount of time is acceptable, but then as the site moves towards production, a shorter time span is acceptable. So we need to make sure that those intervals change, like we are a little bit more careful with our outage monitoring. So, you know, needs can change. It's not even that something's wrong all the time it could just be well this was okay at first but now i guess we need to you know make sure that we
0: catch issues more quickly yeah and like you mentioned moving an app to production like tighten the windows up and that's a good chance to like review those settings mm-hmm. too but also you know you may have an application you build for a client or whatever you deploy and it's not super important when you deploy it but maybe 5 years from then it's a business critical thing like everyone relies on this system for you know, whatever we had, we had a system I managed at a different job that started as just a way to report how the sales team was doing, and then over time, the sales team had that page up constantly, reloaded it every minute because they could see like their commission targets versus the the sales they were closing, <laughs> and so every salesperson like reloading that page told them how much money they were making that that month. So, so it became mission. It, it became critical. mission critical to their sales force, even though it was like just this like this report that used to get run at the end of the month to pay everybody. But then the salespeople are hammering it. Cause they're like, I want to see, I want to see the dollars go up throughout the day. Of course. So, and and sometimes you don't know that stuff till the app's been down for four minutes and you get a call from someone and they're like, Hey, uh, so this is super important. Actually, um, sales doesn't know how much money they're going to make. <laughs> right. You're like, oh, weird. It's not even the end of the month. Why is that report getting run? They're like, oh no, it's run hundreds of times every minute. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, that <laughs> both informs my monitoring frequency and also how much resources I'm giving that system. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That was a that was an interesting one for sure. Yeah.
1: There's also been times where some of these whys just lead to um when we first released this site. It was used by fifty people, but now it's used by hundreds, and yeah. it just takes more memory. So yep. it, you know, it, a lot of times there's really good results from this that we can go. Okay, we we need to raise the memory limit if you know if there's a lot more users using it, might as well. Yep, or something like that.
0: So once you've identified the root cause, you want to do a backlog check. You want to make sure you associate any other tickets that are open in all your systems. Um, where, where this was the cause, because you don't want people troubleshooting those tickets when you've already done the work. You also want to make sure that you're telling clients or customers or end users, whoever it may be like, Oh yeah, we've, we figured this out and we've implemented these steps to fix it. Cause as far as like that ticket is concerned, it was open like, Hey, there's a problem. And then problem got fixed in another ticket. You may just tell that, that customer. Oh, it's weird. It hasn't problem. Has not recurred? Like whatever. That's not a great resolution, especially if you've spent the time and done the work somewhere else. This is really important for larger teams where you may have team members who aren't aware that an outage happened or what the resolution was um, for sure. And this is pretty important because the look that you
1: get from the response is pretty, pretty different. If, if a, site goes down, that happens. It's not necessarily a bad look, but if you just don't respond or you say, I'm not sure, you know, it must've just been, you know, a little bug. That's not really a great look, but if you can come back, you know, pretty quickly with a filled out root cause analysis and you've prevented the issue in the future, that's a really good look. And I'm not going to lie. I love Cloudflare. They've had a few outages over the years, nothing huge, but they have. Uh, But their response is always this very long, in-depth blog post about what went wrong, how they're going to prevent it in the future. And I just think that's really impressive. So like yep. Cloudflare is who I always think of when good root cause analyses are brought up.
0: Yeah, because everyone's going to have outages at some point. Like it's kind of inevitable. And the measure of like how well you're doing is not like, do you have a lot of outages? It's do you have the same issue recurring a lot of times, that's not good. Is your response poor, right? Or is it, or is it a good response when you have an outage? And that's kind of the measure of, you know, how well you're doing.
1: Yeah. And that actually leads us to the next one. So you want to check the recurrence, make sure that there's not historical issues that were caused by the same
0: thing. Right. Yeah. Because you may have worked a similar ticket before and maybe you didn't work it you know, for whatever reason, you didn't get to the root cause. you just like, oh, weird. Memory utilization was high. Restarted app. Everything was great. And then, you know, six months later, it happens. You do a full root cause analysis and you figure out the underlying cause. You need to go back and check your systems for, oh, yeah, this app, this is that one we restart every now and again when the memory is high. And then you can fix the underlying problem. And that that's always good. And you can link
1: back and be reassured that, okay, we saw high memory usage six months ago, and now we know why that happened, and we've prevented it. So it's not yeah. just lingering in someone's mind somewhere in the company.
0: Yeah, it can also help with a little bit of pattern recognition, too, because they're, like I mentioned, there I've had companies, especially when I was doing more BI analytics system support, like there were some reports that got ran annually or quarterly. So like every quarter, we would get, like the system would, use a lot of memory for whatever reason we'd go like restart it or, or troubleshoot after a few quarters we looked back and we're like oh this happens at the last business day of every quarter let's figure and that can actually influence like what where do we go look for the problem oh interesting that actually because, helps
1: you fix it
0: yeah but you know a few of those in a row it's like oh weird it's memory's high i'll just restart this application and it'll be fine that's really cool but like when you have a full picture of it, then you're like, oh, OK, I know I know where to start looking for this. Yeah, I know what fixed this problem
1: run on the last business day. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's awesome. And that kind of rolls us into like lessons learned, right? Like just a full picture of what could we have improved during the response? How could the issue have been prevented in the first place? How do we make our systems better to protect against either this human error, this technical error, this reliance on a certain cloud vendor or software service or whatever that, that let this happen or you know didn't stop it from happening.
1: Yeah, this one's always interesting to me because it's basically a postmortem of the postmortem.
0: <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's, it's a little review meta. of the entire postmortem of like okay, let's everything that we said maybe we could do better. Let's compile all of those things. You're generally also opening tickets for those things, right? Because mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, you know, maybe Maybe a lesson learned is like we need to reduce the timeouts on all of our monitoring systems. You're not doing that in this ticket. That's not, you know, this ticket is not the fix everything ticket. This is the postmortem ticket. This you make bring a the new site ticket, back, report yeah. on
1: why. Yep.
0: Right. You make a new ticket for let's adjust our thresholds. And then, you know, you, you complete your postmortem and then you put that in the work queue. Um, and kind of similar to corrective actions. I guess corrective actions is actually the actionable things that you that come out of the lessons learned. Yeah, like so actions. Actually, items where that goes. Yeah, that's what items. I always call that one. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know. Is that in their template? Because I always think of that as action items. I don't know. If I it's think any
0: it. Different. Yeah, maybe they call it action items, but typically it's a link to all those. Like in our ticketing system, like the the postmortem will have a link to all yeah. the action items. And so something you might do also, or something a project manager or or someone else will do is every once in a while, check up on the postmortems, go check on the action items because you create all those action items, but if you don't do them, the issue that caused the problem could still happen or go undetected or, you know, whatever, whatever the action items you you spelled out. If those don't get fixed, if someone's not following up on those, then you're still going to run into the same problems again someday.
1: Yep. You still could possibly have these exact same issues.
0: So that's the end of our template. Um, I found this super helpful as we go through these things, um, because, you know, it's easy, relatively easy. It's straightforward to troubleshoot an outage, fix a problem and then say, okay, good, that's done. Let's move back to our regularly scheduled backlog of work. But you really do need to sit down and document all of this stuff or all you'll do. If you don't fix these problems, all you'll end up doing is fighting fires and that's really stressful. And it leads to, can lead to burnout and just like poor job satisfaction
1: Yeah. And it's, it's really easy to, I mean, I mentioned, I, I enjoy fixing outages. It's kind of a problem solving experience, but it's also, you know, it can be more hectic than a normal day. So there are times where I see something and go, Ooh, need to fix, like raise that memory limit later on, but it's not breaking anything at the moment and move on. It's really easy to forget about things as I'm just sifting through data and stuff. So I think postmortems are very important to make sure that any of those little points that I had, those little thoughts, get captured on paper, and then, you know, they're not going to get lost.
0: Yeah, so while while outage troubleshooting can be stressful, and, like, even though I enjoy it, it is stressful, I (laughs) find the postmortem process kind of relaxing and... Because I know that I'm dumping things that are only in my mind onto, you know, onto quote unquote paper, but like into a system, I don't have to track those in my mind anymore. So that mental burden is kind of gone as you work through this postmortem process. And I, I find it relaxing. I love working through postmortems.
1: Me too. And I, I don't usually love the like documentation side as much as the actual
0: implementation. Yeah. Postmortems, I agree, are very satisfying. Thanks for listening. Our website is podcast If you would like to suggest topics for us to cover or have feedback on topics we have covered, send us an email. Our address is contact at podcastesco.show, or you can hit us up in our Discord. Join us in a fortnight to discuss disaster recovery and business continuity. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening.